Blog Talk Radio. Day. 
Our first panelist is Brother Anthony. We'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Father Brother Anthony, we now will bring in Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. <clears throat> my name is Haki Kamafi Mishoki. Colonel with African Awareness, and of course, you know, my thing is all about institution building. And let me just briefly state why institution is so important in the African community. Recently, the American Medical Association disclosed that it encourages doctors to fill out uh, COVID-19 certificates stating that the patient has, has um, coronavirus. But in fact, uh, this, this information conveys also the fact that um, you know, irrespective of the truth, even when labs come back negative, since so the patient doesn't have coronavirus, uh, they, are, they, they, they do so because there's monetary rewards involved in this. So for every patient they um, illegally or, or wrongfully uh, accuse, uh, alleged have coronavirus, they get paid $13,000. Now, if they use a ventilator, that's an additional $39,000. So there's an economic incentive. Uh, to make sure that doctors, um, 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 you know, um, create artificial numbers, but in the process ensuring lots and lots of money. But superimposed upon that, Brother Africa, is the fact that, you know, um, the definition of coronavirus has greatly changed. According to the Center for Disease Control, uh, there's two models they use. One pertains to the certainty of coronavirus. The other is the presumptive nature of coronavirus. So in other words, so when they want to inflate the numbers in terms of coronavirus, based upon the presumption, it counts as, in fact, that the individual actually has coronavirus, when in reality they don't. But what it does do is it heightens the kind of fear that people feel. So um, it's very, very interesting. So when we talk about the modernization in terms of um, diseases or viruses for, for the purpose of making money or terrifying the populace, we've got to give the American government uh, kudos to uh, their ability in terms of, you know, uh, making sure that rich people get money at the expense of others at the same token, uh, hyping them, uh, the fear that people feel in relation to coronavirus. So it's important that institutions prevail because without some understanding in terms of what realistic is going on, then it leads to very, very difficult circumstances. So I'll close with that and say again, Brother Africa, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here, Brother Haki. Next we go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the panelists, and all, and just greetings to everyone. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the often finisher of my faith, and that my faith tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you for being here, Brother Moses. Panelists, what we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for this cause real briefly, and when we come back, we can go to a minute segment that we normally go, go into on the 
weekly basis, and that is what's going on in your world and the community. So when we come back, we'd like to know what's going on in your world and community. And to our listening audience, we'd like to know what's going on in your world and your community. And you can do that when you come when we come back by calling in at one three two three six seven nine O eight four one. We're gonna pause for this call and we'll be right back and you are listening to Africa on the Move. Cities in the U.S. are currently in debt. Debt collected debt totals $323 trillion. 
and this according to the truth and accounting. Now, this average is a little over $5 trillion per city. Now, in addition, Brother Africa, uh, 10 million people uh, have lost their jobs as it currently stands. At the conclusion of this so-called crisis, millions and millions or more will lose their jobs. Now, the question is, what do the cities do with so many people who are in need of resources? Now, the options the city have are, are three, essentially. One, they could privatize services, but, of course, uh, limited services only means smaller number of people would benefit. So it does nothing in terms of resolving the overall problem in terms of so many people without anything to do. Secondly, they could cut services deemed wasteful, you know, public schools, social service, those kind of things. They could, they could eliminate those things, but it's not going to exacerbate the problem. The problem still persists. Thirdly, they could unleash the, unleash the police force uh, supported by the National Guard. And this strategy will be acceptable and supported by the, because of whether the fair dollars. Uh, the only problem, Brother Africa, is the masses of unwanted people may be under control, but their presence will constitute a great deal of instability for the system at large. So the question remains, what is, what is the state to do? So if you were to run a government and you had the situation where people don't have access to jobs or access to health care, don't access, have access to food, don't have access to um, um, uh, affordable housing, the question is, what do you do? So I leave that question as a rhetorical question and ask, ask the audience, what would you do in a similar situation? And I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Following Brother Haki, we'll go with Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world in the community? Uh, certainly. Um, the U.N. Secretary General uh, last month uh, made an appeal uh, to the membership of the UN uh, to cease all wars and military conflicts in order to in, a, uh, in order to focus energies on combating uh, the coronavirus pandemic, and uh, the All uh, African People's Revolutionary Party (GC) is going to, um, you know, launch a petition in support of this call uh, for all co- uh, for a meeting of the, ent- uh, the uh, a virtual meeting of the entire UN Security Council to, uh, you know, support this call for, uh, for, 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 for a, a general ceasefire uh, in order to, in order for countries to be able uh, to deal with the coronavirus pandemic, and to allow countries that are suffering from the effects to get uh, the appropriate aid that they need in order to combat uh, the, uh, the, uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony. Next we'll go with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Thank you, thank you. Well, we see the commander-in-chief slave driver is is trying to push us back to work as soon as possible. Uh, um, he tried to defer blame from himself, uh, any responsibility by shifting the, the attack to the World Health Organization and saying that they were inadequate and he doesn't want to fund them anymore. And so we have a real idiot in the White House. And so uh, 
I I just hope that uh, uh, the doctors with who are who are putting some input into this plan of return, uh, calling for two weeks of various um, uh, lowering of the the curve for two weeks before going into each phase, and hopefully that will be some deterrence on them, but. But anyway, the slave drivers just trying to drive us back to work. Uh, that's been the main thing that happened. This this thing, I I just think it's deplorable that at a time like this, we would try to defund the World Health Organization. Well, we need a united front of everybody to combat this disease. Thank you. Thank you, brother Moses. You know, panelists. Um very interesting in terms of one of the things, Brother Hackey, you alluded to earlier about um, how they are using this, this so-called pandemic to make money off of it. You often remind me of this, this quote. This, this quote people used to always say that figures don't lie, but lies do figure, and that seems to what been going on. I recently saw some report that was talking about how they have written to special legislation under the law to to give out these so-called monies to the people, but it written a secret um, provision in that law where they are giving out, giving out millions of dollars to other sectors and people, and even to some of his family members. And I find that to be interesting. We're going to look into that a little more closer. And next week we'd like to have a discussion on that. But what I would like to do right now is um, just get y'all to do a quick response, and then we would like to have Anthony to talk about a very significant day that's coming up next month, which is African Liberation Day, Palestine Day, and Lockbox Day. We would like for him to talk a little bit about it, and so I'll let the people become more aware of this special day that's coming up, and we're going to need their support. So right now, panelists, just in general, you know, um, what do y'all think about the call of um, possibility of people going back to business as usual in the next two to three weeks? So with you, Brother Hackey. Yeah, well, I think one of the things, I think at this point, I think it's becoming clear to increasingly amounts of, amounts of people that this notion in terms of the viability or the, the, the needs of the, uh, of the mass of the people is not a concern of the, ma- of the people in positions of power. In fact, one thing she alluded to when you talk about the $1.7 million that what uh, under the so-called um, coronavirus bill that they passed, part of it was to make sure that um, not only did the, the wealthy receive $1.7 in terms, in terms of returns when they, when they file taxes, but more importantly is to ensure that um, that the, 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 the margin that exists between those who have and those don't, don't have continue to proliferate. And so, therefore, what they're saying to you, essentially, is that your 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 the right to exist as a poor person in America uh, doesn't doesn't really exist. To the extent that it exists, it exists only in the mind of people who think that they have a right to exist. But without concretely, fundamentally fighting for your right to exist, it's not guaranteed. And this is one thing that we got to understand. So, when I talked about earlier, when I talked about the um, you know the, the 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 benefits in terms of you uh, election people have you know COVID nineteen. And the, the uh, monetary benefits to to these hospitals. Again, it's all about in, in, it's all about empowering or making sure that the wealth have access at the expense of all others. And so, therefore, when you sit there and you arbitrarily inflate numbers for the soul of making money, then what does that say in terms of the aspirations or the needs of the people? 
So therefore, you, inevitably, what happens is that you end up spending lots and lots of money, you know, for for um, for sicknesses that don't really exist. But it doesn't really matter because as long as the money is transferred from those who are poor, those who are perceived as weak, to those who are wealthy or those who are perceived as strong, then it's a okay. And so I think people have to fundamentally understand that dynamic. And it also goes into the business, into the, to, 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 to the business sector. So when we talk about, you know, stock buybacks, repos, qualitative easing, all this is a systematic way to transfer wealth from the poorest people to the wealthiest people's society. And so, therefore, at some point, we've got to begin to recognize that existence, as far as those in power are concerned, is esoteric. In other words, we don't have a fundamental right to exist. And they can do everything in their power to make sure we don't have a right to exist by ensuring that the economic disparities that exist in society continue to proliferate, which means that in the context of capitalist society, no access to capital means no access to power. And that's precisely the formula they want to they want to uh, they want to they want to continue. So clearly, you're absolutely correct. Uh, it is a fundamental problem, but I think it's a problem of capitalism, and people have to begin to understand that at some point. Brother Anthony, you would check about possibly putting people back into the um, back into business as usual. I think it's disastrous for the masses of the people because uh, there is no handle on on how many people are infected with coronavirus, or how many people may have uh, or, or, or may have other uh, serious health issues uh, that uh, uh, you know that uh, that that have similar symptoms to that. And the fact that 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 numbers are being distorted for financial gain makes it harder for the healthcare and scientific community to get a handle on how many people and how widespread coronavirus is in this society. And I think uh, the idea of uh, you know uh, you know trying to reopen uh, the economy in order to stave off the crisis of capitalism at the expense of the masses of working people is is cold-hearted and uh and very vicious. And brother Moses, your take on this particular possibility of letting people to go back as business as usual. Well, I just, I'm opposed to it myself. I think we you know, if we're going to err, we should err on the side of caution and uh uh this this uh drive for for money and profit and uh you know to to i don't know just just this idea that somehow the economy is is something other than the people really is what what it what it comes down to is and that you know the most valuable thing in the economy is the people it's a political economy. And that you know we should be looking out for the interests and aspirations of the masses of people, and obviously that's not happening. Uh, the the Trump administration is is just uh, um, hostile to to the working class, hostile to the working class, and and that's just the bottom line. That's why we he's been he's been hostile ever since he's been in there. Nothing's changed. And uh, that's just the way it is. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Anthony, we know there's a special event coming up next month, May 23rd. 
that an institution that reflects the interests, the needs, and will of all African people, as well as oppressed people in general. Well, you talk to our listening audience a little bit about this institution that's called African Liberation Day, Palestine Day. What is African Liberation Day, Palestine Day, Brother Anthony? Certainly. Uh, let's see, real briefly, uh just a, a, by, by way of background, uh, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, and the National Council of Arab Americans are organizing African Liberation Day slash Not by Palestine Day 2020 to mark the onward progress, progress of the African Revolution in Africa South, Central, and North America, the Caribbean, Europe, Asia, and the South Pacific Islands fight for liberty that can only be won with the realization of Pan-Africanism, one unified socialist Africa. AOD, not by Palestine Day, also marks the onward progress of the Palestinian nation, national uh Liberation Revolution Both in Palestine But also in the Palestinian Diaspora The Palestinian people are also Fighting against imperialism And Zionism worldwide Including a life And death struggle with the Apartheid practicing Genocidal European Zionist settler colonial Regime in Palestine uh, this marks the second, uh, second anniversary of African Liberation Day commemorations around the world and the, seventh, the second commemoration and protest of Not by Palestine Day. And uh, ALD, Not by Palestine Day, is an expression of the fearless, Unwavering and uncompromising struggle of African and Palestinian people to be free from all forms of exploitation and oppression. Uh, this year's theme is not yet Uhuru, not yet freedom, not yet liberation. In combat with women's oppression, neocolonialism, Zionism, and settler colonialism worldwide. And we choose this theme because, in spite of the numerous uh, efforts and sacrifices of Africans and Palestinians around the world, and other, as well as other oppressed people, we are not yet free. We have not yet obtained our liberation. You know, Brother Anthony, when we talk about African Liberation Palestine Day as institution. What type of organizations and and presentations people can expect to hear as relates to the concept of speaking truth to power? Because I have participated in past African Liberation Day, Palestine Day, and one of the beautiful aspects of it is the primary information that you receive. But more importantly, you have representatives and organizations giving you the reality of what's going on on the ground, inside of their country, their world, and they speak to those who are inflicting uh, harm, not only to their people, but to humanity. So you get to hear the reality of speaking truth to power at the institution. So give us some kind of sense of what can we expect 
in terms of participants and the type of organizations that would be participating under this institution. Okay. Uh, for us, African Liberation Day, Palestine Day is a vehicle for uh, 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 for, 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 for solidifying our alliances with other justice, uh, peace-loving, and struggling peoples around the world who are fighting against all manifestations of imperialism and capitalism. So you can uh, expect uh, to hear from other revolutionary political parties and uh, progressive um, uh, organizations from around the world, uh, such as uh, uh, Cuba, Venezuela, uh, Congo, Guinea, uh, Palestine, uh, and uh, numerous other countries that have either that are either struggling to achieve scientific socialism or are battling some manifestation of capitalism, such as uh, settler colonialism or neocolonialism. And Brother Anthony, before we bring on our next guest, Brother Bilal Sunni Ali, what I want you to do is just talk a little bit about this whole question of the AAPRPGC is a inheritor and continuator of Kwame Nkrumah, Secretary and Kwame Ture. Can you speak just briefly about some of the significant works that these individuals have done for our people and why the AAPRPGC has continued, chosen to continue and inherit that work? Uh, certainly. Um, Kwame Nkrumah, after the 5th Pan-African uh, Congress in 1945, uh, spearheaded uh, the effort to um, uh, obtain independence for Ghana uh, through the Convention People's Party, CPP, organized in 1949 which culminated in Ghana obtaining independence on, uh, in September of 1957 uh, after, uh, uh, from the British Empire. What, character, what, diff, what made uh, Ghana's independence different uh, from, uh, from those of other African countries at that time period was that at that time, uh, this uh, drive for independence was led by a mass Pan-African Revolutionary Party, and uh, it sought uh, the unification and liberation of Africa under scientific socialism as its objective. Obtaining independence for Ghana was the first step, and that was followed by the attainment of independence in 1958, by Guinea, under the leader, uh, uh, under the Democratic Party of Guinea, led by Ahmed Sekou and again, uh, the, uh, he, uh, they uh, sought the unification and liberation of Africa. And uh, Kwame Ture came to study under both of these Pan-Africanists uh, later on. 
and uh, he can, he carried forward their work to achieve Pan-Africanism, and that is why we uh, we seek to uh, we seek to inherit and continue the work that was sparked by these Pan-Africanists, Kwame Nkrumah, Ahmed Secretary, and Kwame Ture, to achieve mm-hmm. Pan-Africanism, one unified socialist Africa. And Brother Anthony, give us the email website where people can find out more about your organization, the African Liberation Day. Certainly. You can visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org, or you can contact us via email at info at a dash aprp dash gc dot org or you can call us at two oh two two four six four eight nine six for more details. And uh May twenty third culminates in a week of activities commemorating uh, and marking African Liberation Day Palestine Day. Brother Anthony we'd like to thank you for giving us this update and making sure we put on that calendar that African Liberation Day is coming soon. Put on your calendar, May the 23rd. And I believe also you are in the process of extending to activities during the week, a pre-ARD, 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 pre-ARD day, Palestine day. So, brothers and sisters, stay tuned. We will continue to talk about this in weeks to come. But right now what we're going to do is just give you a little flavor of um, a message to represent and to provide the Institution of African Liberation Day from Brother Kwame Ture. And then when we come back, we will have our brother Bilal Sunni Ali, who are going to talk about one of his comrades who definitely need the help of our people dealing with this system, which we know is a, which is an injustice system, and that's our theme tonight, is system of injustice. We're going to talk about our brother Jamil Alameen very shortly. We'll be right back. Don't you go nowhere. You're one black man who went to a good, essentially white high school in the city of New York. That's you right. obviously had had a good education. That's a good many of the people who work with you here in SNCC can say the same thing. And we're saying that... And you're a black man who came from a New York ghetto. And we're saying that there's a system that allows for one or two black people to get out. And that that's the rationale for keeping other black people down. And it has nothing to do with the unwillingness or inability of the Negro to help himself and to work hard. That's the rationale, that the reason why black people aren't this is because they're lazy, unambitious, stupid, have rhythm, and they eat watermelon. You call on the black man to refuse to respond to his draft call. That's correct. And we will continue to do so while there's breath in our bodies. Do you really believe that the military policies of the United States are designed to exterminate the black man, as you've said? I most certainly do. I look at the recent statement by Racist McNamara, who says that 30% of the people that are going to be drafted now under his new system are going to be black people. And that's nothing more than black urban removal. The white liberal who supported civil rights for so long with time and effort and money, what is your feeling about him? Well, I think that there's no reason why they should stop supporting the movement now. I certainly feel that if they're genuinely interested in black people, and since black people have charted a course 
they believe in that program, they will continue to give to it. They need more white people to civilize whites. They need them to civilize the savages in Cicero who throw rocks and bricks at a peaceful and lovable black man like Dr. Martin Luther King, who would not even hurt a fly. Well, that's very important, because our uncles and our fathers and our older brothers died in World War I fighting Nazism to protect the Poles, and those same Poles turn around and throw rocks and bricks at us after we died to save their lives. And people talk about we are savages. Mr. Carmichael, if you had the chance to stand up in front of the white community and say anything you desired, say to them, understand me, white man, what would you say? I would say, understand yourself, white man, that the white man's burden should not have been preached in Africa, but it should have been preached among you that you need now to civilize yourself. You have moved to destroy and disrupt. You have taken people away. You have broken down their systems and you have called all that civilization. And we who have suffered at this are now saying to you, you are the killers of the dreams. You are the savages. Yes, it is you who have always been un civilized. Civilize yourself. You're one black man. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. You're listening to a historical interview by Brother Kwame Ture as he talked about the system, which is our theme tonight. We're putting the system on trial. The theme is a system of injustice. And talking about one of his well-known comrades, who, are, who is now in need of your support. We'd like to bring in his representative, one of his spokes, spokes representative, Brother Bilal Sunni Ali. He can come and share with us, give us an update what's going on with our brother Jamil Alameen, formerly known as H.R. Brown. And we first and foremost would like to just welcome our brother Ali to Africa on the Move. We welcome, brother. Welcome you to Africa on the Move. Uh, thank you, thank you very much, Brother Lee. Um, I'd like to first, first, first say that I seek refuge in the law against misleading and being misled. I seek refuge in the law against, and in actual law, to guide my heart and guide my tongue as far as any any information that I would like to impart and that you have me impart tonight. Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, to come on this show and want to also express on behalf of Iman Jamil his heartfelt thanks for all of you for any amount, small or great, of support that you have shown, any amount of help and support that you that you have shown in the past or that we continue to show in the future. I want to, uh, before we go any further, I'd like to give out two very important web addresses that is be important for people to get information from. Um, the first is our Facebook page, and that's www.facebook.com forward slash Imam Jamil Action Network. I'll spell that out, uh, Imam Jamil Action Network. 
I M A M J A M I L A C T I O N N E T W O R K. That's www.facebook.com forward slash Imam Jamil Action Network. Another very important web address to get information from is what happened to rap. What happened to rap? Spelling that out. W-H-A-T-H-A-P-P-E-N-E-D. The number two, R-A-P.com. What happened to rap.com. Okay, Brother Ali, um, before we talk about our beloved Brother H.R.L. Brown, I would like for you to share with our listening audience and give us a back a backdrop of who you are and some of your histories. Some of your history. Because um, you have accomplished and done many things. And just share a little bit of that uh, with our listening audience and the rest of the world. You too are a true, true freedom fighter. Oh, Thank you very, thank you very much. I'm, um, I'm here to, I'm here to mainly give information about Imam Jamil Alameen and Rep. Brown, but I'll briefly state that I've been a, an advocate for political prisons since I was 18. I was a national spokesman for the National Committee for Defense of Political Prisoners, and then the national spokesman for the national spokesman for the defense of Sundiata Akoli and Asada Shakur, and and since then I and during that time I was the featured soloist and guest artist in uh, on tour and recording with Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson and the Midnight Band, a very uh, very phenomenal group in the in the liberation struggle of African people. Okay, Brother Ali, let's get to the core of the discussion as we talk about this system of injustice. For our listening audience, and particularly for the youth today who may not know anything about our beloved brother, Imam Jamil Alameen, formerly known as H.R. Brown, do you have some historical reference and background? Who was Brother Imam Jamil Alameen, formerly known as H.R. Brown? Yeah. Let's say if people go to that um, web address, you can find notes and video footage from conference that we held uh, last October entitled Relearning H. Rap Brown. H. Rap Brown from the time he was from the time he was 16 was actively involved in actually in his hometown Baton Rouge. He was very actively involved in in sit-ins at, at lunch counters and things of that nature trying to uh, establish justice and equality for the for the African citizens of that town. He later became involved uh, following his older brother Ed Brown with the uh, nonviolent action nonviolent action group, which was a subsidiary of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Um, after working with that group in Washington D.C. He actually joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and became the state chairman after working 
in student ranks, he became the state chairman in the state of Alabama, where he worked very diligently in the in on voter education, voter registration and voter education. And and to work on voter education and voter registration uh during that time you had to deal with self defense. And so he became known for emphasizing self defense. Um and because he emphasized self defense, he was accused of being violent. And he uh he began to travel around the country um, to to talk about to to the African communities about self determination and self defense, uh, self determination um, being expressed at that time uh, through the phrase "black power," that the black community should control should control what is in the black community. And that don't be that whatever you don't control will be used as a weapon against you. He got he became he his name became known to prominence and in prominent when in 1967, uh, while on tour through the African communities and discussing self determination at a rally in Cambridge, Maryland. Where he was, where he was, where he was there to do just that very same thing, and the school building burnt down. That had burned down three times before in that very same year. Um, they blamed that on him, and unbeknownst to him, they charged him with arson, and they charged him with arson. Um, he had been he had been ambushed. Uh, he had been ambushed by some policemen and shot. You may see footage of photo stills with uh, H.R.A.P. Brown with a bandage on his left side of his forehead and over his eye. That's where he was shot with uh, gunshot pellets, uh, creased his eye. He wasn't further wounded in that in that actual incident, and so he left town and he went he he went back to uh, his hometown, Baton Rouge. And they used that they because he had to travel across three state jurisdictions. He traveled from Cambridge, Maryland, to Washington D.C., then from Washington D.C. to Alexandria, Virginia, where the where the Washington National Airport is, in order to catch a plane to travel home. They used that after falsely um, charging him with arson to say that he. Avoid, he, tra- he crossed state lines to avoid prosecution, um, but they but the but the charge of arson was fabricated in the first place. But that's how they uh, that's how they used that. The uh, district attorney in Maryland and the county that Cambridge, Maryland, and later stated in open court that he fabricated those charges in order to create a case and a federal case against against H. Rap Brown. And so that has been 50 years that there has been uh, fabricated cases on the part of the government and on the part of the government in order to entrap and incarcerate and even kill uh, our our beloved brother H. Rap Brown, now known as Imam Jamil. That's just... 
part of the history that led up to uh, his present situation. We all know yeah, many of us. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, okay, let's talk about the phenomenon of the present situation. What led up to the recent court decision on April the 6th of denying his um, appeal to the Supreme Court? Can you just give us a scenario of that whole history, recent history, of what led up to this denial? Okay, um, just to be clear, this, <clears throat> the Supreme Court did not deny uh, his appeal. What has happened is that they have refused to hear the appeal. In refusing to hear the appeal, um, in refusing to hear the appeal, we have the understanding that it's uh, it's it's better for him, it's better for us in the in the in the course of appealing because he had recently been denied an appeal by the Eleventh Circuit State Court of the uh, of the state of Georgia, and there has been a recent ruling. We'll have more about that recent ruling that affects the uh, the state court's denial, <clears throat> which gives us which gives us room to go back. And the uh, the attorneys are working on that uh, working on that motion uh, to go back into the uh, into, in, into the state court where we where we may be able to have that case heard again. There were over a hundred and eight cited violations of his constitutional rights which were heard. But the primary issue that were heard at the Eleventh Circuit was the fact that the uh, that the district attorney, the prosecutor in that state prosecutor in that case, um, knowing full well that Imam Jamil had a right uh, not to take the stand, actually posed questions to him as if he was on the stand uh, during his summation, uh, during the, 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 the prosecutor's summation, he pretended that Imam Jamil was on the stand and he asked him and he asked him questions in front of the jury, which was the most one of the most egregious violations of his of his uh, of his constitutional rights. And like I said, there were over 107 other other violations cited. An- another one was that they did not allow the um, they did not allow the person <coughs> the person who was <coughs> excuse me they didn't allow the person who they claimed was the only living eyewitness uh, to the shooting incident, which took place on March 16, uh, 2000. Uh, his name is Algernon English, Deputy Sheriff Algernon English, who was a decorated, a decorated um, ex-Marine, uh, decorated to the regard that he had medals that identified him as being a sharpshooter. This person said that, in a statement, said that he shot his assailant in the head one time and shot his assailant in the chest two times. And being a sharpshooter, we would expect that he knows what he's talking about. But Imam Jamil had not been shot at any time on March 16th. 
um, March 16, 2000. He also said that his assailant was uh, approximately five foot eight and was dark brown skin and had cold gray eyes. Imam Jamil is approximately six foot five, is light brown skin and complexion, and has brown eyes. There was a person about five foot eight, uh, five foot eight, dark brown complexion, and five and with with dark brown eyes, who was on parole at the time, who confessed to the crime. He was on parole and he was on a leg monitor. The records show that his leg monitor um, was not operating during the time that the that this incident took place, and he confessed to his uh, he confessed to his <clears throat> the person who was in charge of the of the uh, of the leg monitor, and he confessed to his parole officer, and he was hidden after that. He was taken back into custody, and he was never that information was never brought forth by by the state. And when it was brought forth by the defense attorneys, it was <clears throat> it was it was hushed up, it, it, and it wasn't taken any further than it, than it being mentioned. And and I'm just and to go back further, what I was saying about the deputy sheriff in on English, um, I was bringing the point in about uh, Mr. Otis Jackson who confessed because he is he is another witness. They claim that Algernon English is the only living eyewitness because they didn't want to admit that Otis Jackson, who confessed to the crime, uh, was, was, was actually a person who fit the description that Algernon English gave, who was alive and in custody and was not being brought forth uh, to testify before the jury. And, and and before the open court that he in fact that he in fact was guilty of perpetrating that shooting incident. Hmm. You know, Brother Ali, what we're gonna do right now, we have people on the line who might be interested in asking them questions, finding more about uh, brother um, Jamil Alameen. And what we're gonna do we're gonna open up our phone lines if you listen to the app's gonna move. And you'd like to make a comment mm-hmm. or question for Brother Bilal, please dial 323-679-0841 and then hit 1. Please hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. So right now, what we're going to do, we can go to some of our political panelists right now. They may have a comment or question they would like to ask you about our Brother Jamil. we go with first Brother Anthony. The mic is yours. Okay, certainly. Uh, could you talk a little um, uh, some more for for those uh, uh, for those in the audience who might not be familiar with uh, uh, Imam Jamil's uh, work? Uh, you know, some of the th- some of the things that 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 he contributed toward our you know uh, liberation struggle. I do recall from research that he um, that he succeeded uh, Kwame Ture as uh, chairman of uh, SNCC uh, in his mm-hmm. career, and uh, 
could you talk about uh, some of the uh, some of the, some of the other, some of the things he did uh, during around that time period and since? Uh, and why is it that he is being um, you know persecuted by the state the way he is? Uh, uh, and uh, and what do you, and what to what extent do you think his political activity has contributed to that? Oh, certainly. Because um, first, I would like to say outright that his his political activity contributed to him being a target of the state, as I mentioned earlier. Ever since he was uh, ever since he was a teenager in his home state of of Louisiana in his hometown of Baton Rouge, uh, he was he was targeted uh, by local authorities and he was targeted by by federal authorities when he became when he became the spokesman for self determination. Um, and particularly around the issue of self determination and self defense. In Lowndes County while he was State chairman for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He helped to organize the Lowndes County Freedom Freedom Organization, uh, which is where they had the uh, they used the symbol and, of the Black Panther, and that's where Bobby Seale and Huey Newton got the uh, got used the symbol and wrote to the officials of the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. And asked them, could they use that symbol and could they use that name? Because the Lowndes County Freedom Organization was the first organization popularly known as the Black Panther Party. And they, um, what the work that he did there in terms of transforming a, an area that was of, of largely sharecroppers into people who now held office and held political power. In their in their uh, in the area in which they lived, was seen as a was seen as a threat. If that if that model was to be duplicated and carried out around the country, so he became he was drafted into the Black Panther Party for self defense, and as and it was a coalition between the Black Panther Party for self defense and the developing and and. Black Party, the developing Black Panther Self Defense, and and the SNCC organization, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and and he was and he was the main spokesman, not just the spokesman for those organizations, but he was the spokesman for the for the for the youth in our community at that time, and many of the youth looked up to him because because he advocated. And clearly made it understand, understandable why he advocated uh, self-defense. There were people in the state of Alabama who were killed. One, Viola Luzzo, who was killed while the FBI agent was sitting in the car next to the person that killed her. So it was seen that the, the government was not going was not going to be responsible for defending the lives of would-be voters. So to advocate that people vote and advocate that people vote in order to take control of their communities. He advocated self he advocated self defense. Uh to defend that we would defend ourselves 
against the violence being perpetrated on us by uh, I think we have lost our caller. We hope we can get him back some kind of way. Our caller trap. We can try to get Brother Bilal back, but in the meanwhile, while we're waiting to try to get him back, um, what we're going to do, um, we have with us Caller 2231. Caller 2231, do you have any questions or comments based upon what you have heard so far? Caller 2231, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Any questions or caller, comments? Okay, then I'm calling Brother Haki. While we try to get our brother back, as we listen to his case, what are some of the things that, uh, oh, yes, we can. Call it 2231. Yes, we can. Oh, greetings, uh, Brother Lee. This is Sister How Angela calling from Cleveland. I was just. Go ahead, um, How you doing? I'm doing ahead. wonderful. Thank you. I just wanted to pop in and see how the family was doing. Um, I, you know, probably need to catch up on the conversation a little bit, but um, I just really wanted to just check in and see how everyone was doing in light of the new paradigm that's shifting and, you know, just kind of hear the dialogue that was going on over here. I know you bring information and facts, um, you know, just related to what's going on. I know that we had some discussions. Um, well, it's not related to the brother, um that you're discussing today, um, I mean, with Brother Bilal, because he was on the show the other week, but I know we um, had some discussions around the Cuban situation. I mean, I didn't know if you heard about the accidental, what they said, um, coronavirus going into the chemtrails that they were, that they are spraying overhead. But, I mean, I didn't call to get into a particular topic, but I just wanted to really listen, so... Um, I appreciate okay, well, still in line, and we got Brother, still in line. We got Brother Bilal back. We got him back. So, Brother okay. Bilal, as you were saying, you can continue your um, your, your the discourse that you're having. So, make sure, Brother Bilal. Yes, yes. Thank you. Again, um, as H. Rep. Brown, he further got involved in, um. He further got involved in curbing the drug traffic in our community, um, and there was a, there was a time when he was accused of of robbing a place that was frequently frequented by uh, known drug traffickers, in which the police shot him, and he was put in jail while he was in uh, he was in uh, Rikers Island at the holding facility in in New York. Um, he attended meetings of the Darul Islam movement, and he was, and he, um, at one of those meetings, he he stepped forward and made his declaration of faith. We call it the Shahada, and he he took his Shahada. He be, and he became Muslim and began began to practice Islam. At that point, he continued. He continued because he said uh, he said we had fought the United States government and fought them to a standstill and fought them to a point where they were suing for peace. They were offering jobs and 
drugs and everything to to those freedom fighters who were involved in that struggle, and they were they were trying to they were they were actually suing for peace, and he said, and we did that without a book, and now that he had a book as a guide a guide, he his his it made his job easier, and he continued to fight the uh, drug traffic as as when he when he was released from prison and traveled back uh, back south, he moved to Atlanta, and he and he was uh, chosen as the imam or, or leader of the Islamic community in the west end of Atlanta, and and as the imam and as the leader in in the west end community of Atlanta, he transformed that place which had been known as a had been a drug-ridden neighborhood into an oasis, a drug-free oasis. And as the emir of some 40 other Muslim communities around the country and, and in Canada and in the Caribbean, that, that same stance was taken where the, where the, uh, in, the integrity of the mouse was established and for, for for within a perimeter around the area of of the masjid, there was uh, no drug traffic, or at least a great reduction of drug traffic, and 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 the related related criminal activities associated with drug trafficking, such as prostitution, break-ins, what have you, and so this became a, this became a major. This became a major threat because they use, as we know from the uh, situation with, uh, with, with Oliver North, who was Lieutenant Oliver North, uh, who, was dealing, who was dealing drugs out of, as, a, as a way of financing military operations. And so that was a known way of, a known way of, of financing military operations and covert operations abroad as well as local covert operations, military operations carried on against us in our own communities. And the, so, the, so the disruption of the, of the drug trafficking and the disruption of that money was a direct threat, uh, direct threat to the government. And further, at the time of his, of the actual attack in which he is now presently still he was he had begun to organize an independent community independent Muslim community which was supported by Muslims and non Muslims uh, throughout the south, throughout the country and throughout the Caribbean, uh, where there was to be uh where at the center of it was to be Whitehall, Alabama. And and at and at that point uh they launched the uh the attack on him. He was while driving in Cobb County, a very racist county. He was he was pulled over and and because they said the he, he the car looked suspicious, and they said that the car was part of a the car was part of a stolen car ring, and they discovered that the the car lot where he had proved that he had bought the car from. Was a part of a of a of a of a group of car lots who were selling 
stolen cars. And they never they never finished the investigation or arrested anybody in that in that issue of the of the car lots selling stolen cars. They pursued to to charge Imam Jamil with uh with with uh with with the traffic violation and and had and he has was to appear in court in January of uh, yeah in January of two thousand he was to appear in court in, in Cobb County uh to answer those charges and the day that he was to appear in court it was a snowy day. A snowy day in Georgia is, is very rare. Mm-hmm. But it was a snowy day and he sent his lawyer and two representatives uh, to court. The judge, in fact, closed the court and dismissed the calendar that day. Later on that day, in which the judge had already closed court and dismissed the calendar, the judge walked back into the courtroom, called the name of Imam Jamil. He opened the court, called the name of Jamil Alamein, and then issued a bench warrant for failure to appear, where he had already sent his lawyer home. He then went back into the court, doubled back into court, and issued a bench warrant for failure to appear. And it was that bench warrant on such bogus, on such bogus terms that allegedly the deputy sheriffs were serving that night when they, when they got engaged in a shooting incident a shooting incident with a person who did not fit the description of Imam Jamil at all. But still, Imam Jamil now sits in federal prison after sitting, after being in state prison where he was sentenced to life without possibility of parole plus 35 years. He was transferred to federal prison based on a contract that the federal government will handle prisoners that the state considers too hot to handle. And and so he falls into that special category that the state didn't want to have him as a, as a prisoner because the prison population, particularly the Muslim population in particular, but the entire prison population was was galvanized by the fact that by the fact that Imam Jamil Alamein, formerly known as H. Rap Brown, was there in the prison, and the Muslims had wanted him to be its leader. The Muslims in state in state prisons across the state of Georgia have petitioned for him to be the Imam for all of them. And in fact, the while he was being held in Alabama, the sheriff deputies who were, who were, who held him in custody said that they were proud to have him. You know, even though he was a prisoner, they was proud to have him uh, in their in their midst as 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 their leader, and they considered him as their leader. So he completely upset the situation. There was one another situation, in fact, where a skinhead, a white a white racist group that was organizing in prison, had a conversation. Uh, they were both locked in isolation, and 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 the, and this uh, a member of the skinhead organization talked with Imam Jamil, 
And after after several discussions with Imam Jamil, the skinhead became a Muslim and started to recruit other skinheads, which totally disrupted the the fabric of the of the jails in which the skinheads usually serve as a backup auxiliary force for the for the prison guards in keeping the uh, keeping the prisoners in under control. So his his very presence in the community and his very presence in in the prison while he was in prison illegally, he still had that profound effect and and they made him then they forced they, they asked the federal government to take charge. So now he's in the federal he's in federal custody and has been in federal custody for the past eighteen years. Um Bilal, we will take a question or comment from one of our political panelists today. Brother Haki, the mic is yours. Uh, thank you, Brother Africa. Uh, Brother Belial, I'm telling you, just listening to, you know, uh, the words that you speak, brings back so, mem- so many memories in terms of the kind of abhorrent treatment that uh, political prisoners receive in this country. People think that this is a land of, of justice, a land of uh, fairness, and people don't really understand the history. But one of the things, the question I want to ask you, though, is that, you know, uh, given, you know, prison journey are designed to be humanized. And so when you go in there with, in terms of political, so-called political crimes, um, normally you find yourself under, you know, very peculiar kind of conditions. So my question to you currently as it stands is, Brother uh, Jamil Alameen, is he under any particular uh, conditions or is just regular prison, prison uh, kind of conditions? Well, up until... From the time he entered the state prison, and and then his in, going being interned in federal prison, he had been held in in um, isolation in 23 hours lockup in his cell. Um, they say 23 hours, but it's 24 hours most of the time because a lot of times you don't get out that one hour that you get out, and that one hour that you get out, you're supposed to do everything in that one hour you're supposed to visit the library if you have to get some exercise and recreation and and uh as well as bathe and you and you're forced to do all of that and they will call you back into your cell in in about 50 minutes so um that's the type of isolation and isolation and the type of housing he was held under up until about 18 months ago where he was released from that and and put into general population. Uh, he's still in general population. Um, they released him into general population where, of course, his health began to suffer while in isolation, as many prisoners do. And he suffers from, uh, he suffers from a condition known as a smoldering myeloma, which is a precursor to blood cancer, and he has cataracts on his right eye. He was given a um, he was given a operation on his left eye, which improves his vision in his left eye, but his right eye still has cataracts, and they have been refusing to 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 treat his right eye, and they claim. And they, he's been upgraded to a level four 
prisoner, which level four prisoners are supposed to be transferred to a level four facility where they where they would have 24-hour-a-day medical supervision in level four facilities such as Lexington, Kentucky, or Butner, North Carolina. But they refuse to, even though he's been upgraded in their system, they refuse to send him to a level four facility. They say because he's not special and that he just has to wait on the waiting list. But we say if he's not special, and why all these all all why all these tremendous uh, circumstances with no evidence allowed to allowed to uh, incarcerate him? And why and why was his, has his condition is only such because of he's been illegally he's been illegally held for these past twenty years and since March twentieth two thousand it's been a little over 20 years that he's been held in these conditions. And that's the, that's the condition. That's the, that's the treatment that he has, that he has, that he has been received. Total isolation, refusal to, refusal to treat his medical conditions brought on by the isolation. Okay. Uh, other panelists, they will make a comment or question for you. Then I have one final question for you before you give us a summary in terms of how we communicate and support Brother Jamil Alameen. We go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your question comment, please. Yeah, I just thank you for being on the show. Um, um, it's good to know that you're working on this situation and and that um, you know it's, that's that's great. Uh, I remember when I was about. I don't know, 17 years old or so, um, um, in Alexandria when uh, they brought uh, H. Rap Brown to Alexandria at that point. Uh, they had arrested him, and, uh, and there was a, the, the Alexandria Police Department was in the what they call the Berg in Alexandria where public housing is. And uh, mm-hmm. it was a great turnout that night. I, I was an activist back in those days, and there was a great turned out that night concerned for his well-being and stuff. He finally did get released. But uh, I, I, I think it's great that uh, that you're on the case, and uh, I, I don't really have any questions at this time. Thank you. Well, I think it's great that you're still on the case, being on the scene in Alexandria at that time. We needed you then, and we need, and we need you now. Hey, Brother Blau, can you speak to um, the issue of the many, maybe, prisons he had to travel to? I understand one time from now, he was part of the Arizona State Prison, which also was the system that once held one of the five members, Fernando Gonzalez. Are you aware of, you know, that, that relationship? Okay, he was in um, in Colorado, uh, where a number of a number of political prisoners and prisoners of war were were held. Um, they didn't interact with one another uh, because they were um, a number of other political prisoners who he's he's known to associate with were were there. Uh, our brother. 
Brother uh, Sekou Odinga was there. Uh, Dr. Matulu Shakur was there. Uh, a number of the uh, a number of political prisoners from uh, international political prisoners were there, as well as uh, Imam. Um, um, the imam in Chicago, known as, uh, as known as Jeff Fort, uh, the leader of the El Rukans, that had formerly been known as the uh, Blackstone Rangers, um, was was being held there. And, and, and another one, um, well, I could just go on naming the the amount of other political prisoners who were who were there, and uh, but uh, the. The the thing was that no they were all held. They were all held with. Um, they were all held in isolation from each other, and every now and then they would maybe get to see each other if their visitors would come at the same time, and they would maybe uh, could pass one another. But the one of the one of the one of the constraints is that. Many of these prisoners have are under what we call a 12-man hole. So when they move, there are 12 prison personnel, guards, who will move with them, as well as they are shackled at the hands and from around their waist, their ankles. Their ankles, their waist is shackled to their hands, and, and they have... Uh, and they have eight men, eight uh, guards, or sometimes 12, surrounding them every time they move. So a lot of times when they are in the same, they're in the same facility, they're not, um, they're not associating with each other. They're not having interaction with each other, except an, an occasional time where they may get to see each other and just nod at each other. And those are the those are the conditions that are that okay, are my brother, prisoners suffer. Yeah, can you, brother Loud, communicate with our people? How can they write them? How can they support your cause? Okay, I would say um, I don't have an update right in front of me, but if you go to the uh, the web address that I gave when I first came on. Uh, www.facebook.com forward slash Imam Jamil Action Network. You'll find at that web address and general updates, which are published uh, three to four times throughout the year. On those updates, you will see where you can write to him and where you can write to him at where he's being presently held at the United States Penitentiary in Tucson, Arizona. And that address is that address can be gotten at that website. At that web address. His his personal address where you can write to him letters. And also where you can send money for his commissary. And also also at that is where you can become part of the struggle. To exonerate and free him from his from his present condition. All right, Brother Bilal, we thank you for taking this 
precious time to share information with the people, getting us an update on Imam Jamil Alameen, and tell the brothers we, we are giving them our best, and we are here anytime we need to get information out. Feel free to give us a call. We thank you very much. Okay, and thank you very much. Thank you all. You know, they have to remain Jamil and his family. You know, we all thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, audience, you listen to Africa on the Move. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a station break, and when we come back, we have Brother Jane Harris. She's going to tell us about a very interesting, important book you may want to read again. And also, we're going to talk a little bit about some candidates that you may not know that are running for the presidency this year. Their names are, we have with us Sister Allison Kennedy and Malcolm Jerry. We'll be back to speak with these supporting individuals who are doing important work in our community. And don't you go nowhere. This is Africa on the Move, and I think tonight is a system of injustice. We'll be right back. Africa, 
Today is the 19th day of April 2020. Tonight's theme is a system of injustice. Uh, before we continue the discussion, we have, right now we have a special guest who will be talking to us about a book that has been published that you want to share with the listening audience on the nature of the book, why it's important to read it, and like always, we do encourage mm-hmm. to read. That's the only way you can learn. And that young man who can talk about this particular book and give us a brief book overview on this book is with us, Brother James Harris. We'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Move, Brother James. Hey, I would like to thank you for inviting me to talk about the uh, book, Red Zone. All right, all right. We thank you for taking this time out to share with our listeners and the rest of the world about this book, Red Zone. Brother James just talk about the book. Tell us, you know, why it's important that you think our listening um, audience should be aware of this book and should read this book. Tell us a little something about this book. Well, I, th- I think this is a very important book for people to read right about now, especially given the uh, crisis that we have going on in the country and the world today around the coronavirus. Uh, Red Zone is a book. Zona Roja in Spanish that tells the story of uh, Cuban volunteers that went to um, Africa to fight the Ebola epidemic, uh, that um, went to the uh, center of it um, in, uh, well, the years 2014 to 15. Uh, They went to uh, to Guinea, Liberia in Sierra Leone uh, as volunteers to fight uh, the Ebola epidemic. This was, you know, as you know, most will remember, a very, very, very severe epidemic that took the lives of, you know, uh, if you've got Ebola, it's about an 80% chance of you dying. And medical professionals and many people, you know, uh, uh, died also with it. But the Cuban people um, uh, answered the call of the uh, World Health Organization and the United Nations and uh, sent doctors to, uh, to, to West Africa to fight the uh, epidemic. They were some of the only, they were the only doctors initially that uh, answered the call. Other countries uh, did uh, send some aid, like the United States sent 500 soldiers to uh, build hospitals and facilities, but the Cubans were the only ones that were able to send doctors. And they did this with volunteers. I think this is very important to understand. They did this with volunteers, because right now the United States, in this unending war, uh, economic war, and propaganda war against Cuba, is blaming these same doctors and vilifying them as being uh, slave doctors uh, and everything to the opposite of what they are, uh, volunteers who, you know, go out around the world to uh, 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 give, give aid and make their services available to uh, regions of the world and, and populations that normally can't, uh, can't afford it and don't have the uh, uh, expert doctors that the uh, that that the Cubans had. The book is told um, 
is uh, written and uh, it's told from the uh, uh, direct uh, uh, directly from the, the doctors themselves. It's written by a uh, Cuban who's a leader of the Cuban Revolution and a journalist, Enrique Liete uh, Gomez. Uh, and it's basically uh, interviews and discussions on why this is possible. Um, right now, in the United States and around the world, like I said, all of these lies that are being told about Cuba, when it was announced, um, when Cuba first began to respond uh, at, at the request of the United Nations and the World Health Organization, um, they had doctors on the ground in West Africa within a matter of weeks. And in fact, uh, something like 12,000 Cubans volunteered to uh, go and uh, participate in the, in, in, in the mission. That's volunteered. Only 250 of them were chosen. A lot of them uh, were very disappointed that they, they could not uh, be participants in, the, in this. These, this is information that is important for, um, you know, people uh, around the world to understand, and especially the United, in the United States, to begin to understand about, uh, to learn the lessons of what the Cuban Revolution has actually achieved. And um, it's achieved, one of the things it's achieved is this ability to, uh, to do this and to mobilize uh, medical aid uh, for people uh, uh, in the poorest countries of the world, uh, around the world, to give aid. And now, you know, it's doing the same thing in response to the coronavirus. Um, you would never know this from the uh, U.S. Uh, media, but it's beginning to break out a little bit more. Uh, because of the uh, social and economic disaster that uh, is confronting the world today, and and people are reaching out to uh, Cuba uh, for aid, and it's to understand that um, this is coming from a uh, country of just 11 million people that's the victim of a uh, uh, embargo, a vicious embargo by the United States that keeps them from getting uh, medical aid, keeps them from e economic activity. But the Cuban uh, people, because they made a revolution, you know, and uh, have a government that organizes, uh, is organized by and for working people, they're able to carry this out. Um, and so it, it's just very important to read this uh to read this book, to discuss it. Um, you can get a uh, James, copy of it. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, talk, well, I was going to ask you just real quickly, just for your own synopsis of uh, having read the book, can you talk just briefly a little bit about what is it that motivates or drive Cuban doctors to go to other countries and willing to serve them without money being a motivating factor? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I've heard uh, Cubans uh, de de describe this on several different occasions. Uh, and uh, this goes back to the roots of the Cuban Revolution. 
um, and uh, what they've been able to uh, do. Um, I got this quote uh, I'm looking at right now from uh, Fidel Castro because he, he said, just as the Cuban combatants in Angola set an example that can never be erased, the heroic actions of the Cuban, Cuba's army of white coat will occupy a place of honor. They explain it and say that uh, this is basically paying their debt to uh, humanity. Uh, the same as they sent troops to uh, uh, Angola to fight the apartheid regime, the same as they've uh, uh, not just medical aid, uh, but uh, aid in, on the on the in terms of uh, uh, literacy brigades, you know, th- throughout the world, they regard this as uh, their responsibility because they are a country that made a. Uh, a revolution and put uh, working class people in charge, and this is what and it sets an example of what can be carried out all over the world. Uh, they don't regard themselves as uh, special people or heroes or anything like that. But this is the way um, forward uh, uh, for for you for humanity. And they have a consistent record of being able to carry that out. They made a revolution, and what the revolution did is it transformed the people that made the revolution themselves. Uh, they become different people, uh, which is why the uh, United States government doesn't want you to see it. That's one of the only places in the world that's uh, actually illegal for you to go to. And you would learn the truth about Cuba. You would learn about what the doctors represent. You would learn about the people that uh, uh, that the doctors uh, uh, are just a small portion of that are based on and what they have achieved. And James, can you finally tell our listening audience how can they purchase this book? They can purchase the book by going to pathfinderpress.com. There's a website there, and uh, you can order the book from there. I guarantee you. If you get the book, you will not be able to put it down. If you have any interest in, uh, you know, real uh, making real social change and socialism and what can be achieved by ordinary working people when we come together and organize ourselves, pathfinderpress.com. And on that note, James, we'd like to thank you for sharing your book review on what book? Tell Red me the name of the book again. Red Zone, there you go. Red Zone. So, I'm just to support this book, because when you support this book, it's a tool to help you be better prepared to move humanity forward. So, James, again, we'd like to thank you for your book review. And at this point in time, we're going to pause for the calls. When we come back, we're going to talk to two individuals who are presidential candidates. And we're going to talk about their experiences of why they're running and how they can improve this system and all the humanity. We'll be right back. we on Africa on the Moon. Our theme tonight is a system of injustice. We'll pause for the cause. We'd like to welcome everybody to Africa on the Moon.
um, that the government did. Twenty over 22 million people are out of work now, and it's many millions more than that. But so I've been involved in these kinds of struggles all my life, and um, that's the reason I joined the Socialist Workers Party in 1975. Um, you know, my my history goes back to, you know, being inspired by the massive struggles of black workers during the civil rights struggles. It had a big Im- impact on me as a high school student when you could see the pictures of uh black workers being hosed down by the police standing up for their rights and and I could see people standing up for something they believed in and could see that the working class has a lot of power in this country and that's one of the big things that had an impact on me and convinced me that we have to change the society that we live in and brother Malcolm would you tell people and our listening audience who you are and just like Allison, when I'm not doing this, the vice presidential candidate for the Social Workers Party, I'm a cook in Pittsburgh, PA. But just like her, I grew up uh, part of the generation that saw, you know, was born during the black-led struggle that ended and toppled Jim Crow segregation. So I saw working people in their hundreds and in their thousands take on that system and defeat it when everybody else said that they couldn't, especially the rulers. And so I grew up believing what Malcolm X talked about, that, you know, we weren't Americans. We were 22 million victims of Americanism, and that our struggle had to be against that idea of capitalism and what it offered, you know, or didn't offer to the working people. So for that reason, I always knew that the oppression of our people was connected to the capitalist system and connected to, and the liberation of our people was connected to ending the capitalist system. You know, and so when I ran into the Socialist Workers Party, I knew this was the kind of party that would help lead that kind of revolution that talked about working people being united, that talked about working people organizing to take on the bosses, building their confidence in the fights they were involved in so that eventually working people can, you know, believe that they can run this thing better than they can, building a labor party, you know, to run and eventually taking power through a revolution. Okay, Ken, when y'all take the lead on explaining to our listeners the history and what is SWP, what is the Social Worker Party? What is it? What is their platform? What's their ultimate goal? How would they transform this society from the way it is today to what you want it to be? I'll start with you, Sister Allison. Well, the Socialist Workers Party um, is a party that goes back to the uh, its continuity goes back to the Russian Revolution in 1917, which was the first time in the history of the world where the oppressed took power, led by a revolutionary um, leadership. And it was a tremendous thing that happened in the world. Russia, before the revolution, was controlled by a czar. Most of the people were peasants, very poor couldn't read or write. Most of the country didn't even have electricity. And this this all was changed through the uh, oppressed in Russia making a revolution, taking power, and, and building a different kind of society. And, and it had an inspiring impact all over the world. Many struggles came out of that, and the roots of our party go back to that. And uh, the party was came out of the first communist party in this country in 1919 
later uh, in uh, when uh, it eventually changed its name to the Socialist Workers Party in 1938, um, and it also our party is. Uh, connected to a newspaper called the Militant Newspaper, which is a socialist newsweekly. This paper was first printed in 1929, and it's a working-class paper. The Socialist Workers' Party is a working-class party. And our main uh, goal is for working people, along with our allies, uh, small farmers, the toilers in this country, uh, to make a revolution in this country and completely change the kind of society we live in and create a society that's based on meeting people's human needs and not the kind of society we have today, which is a capitalist society, an economy that's based on working people, making through our labor, making profit for a tiny minority. And they take this profit from us, never put it back into society. And I think we can, you know, every day... You're seeing the results of, of the kind of society that puts profits ahead of everything when we don't even have enough hospitals, enough hospital beds today, um, when you have millions and millions of people that are out of work. Um, so that that's the roots of our party, and that's the main goal of our party. And Brother Malcolm, as a presidential candidate, when one look at your platform, how would you prep? address this whole question of changing this inequality system to a system that would be based on equality and justice? Yeah, our, our platform and our program is just a very short and simple name, Socialist Revolution. That's how it would change things. I mean, we believe and we reject the notion that we should be enlisted in a brigade to clean up capitalism or reform it in any way. We think that our program points to the things that are, will change and transform the conditions of working people. The, some of the, the two most important programs we have are on a button that we carry around with us and we give to working people and working people who want to contribute to the program or the party or the campaign or get the militant bias, which is workers' control over production. I mean, that, that's an important thing because right now in the capitalist system, there is no safety for working-class people where they work or in any factory or any place. But we said that the bosses and their government lie to working people about the production and cost of profits all the time, and that we demand that working people begin to control production, inspect, open the books, so we can open up the lies and thievery and the shoddy work that the capitalists do and produce and sell to other working people. And we say build a labor party, I mean, a party that is organized and supports the ideals of working people that will be a political voice independent of the Democrats and Republicans, a party that will represent working people and build a place where working people can build the confidence when they go into fights, the fights we see that happening today, you know, around a number of different conditions, like the sanitation workers in Pittsburgh or the soccer miners, you know, copper miners, or, you know, the, you know, Kathleen Georgia, the Purdue workers, you know, so we could have a voice for working-class people. Those two programs, workers' control of production and the labor party, are key. But the program is a socialist revolution, a wide-ranging socialist revolution that you saw in Cuba in 1959, like the guests before us talked about, where working people began to transform society in the hills of Sierra Maestra, you know, um, in the hills during the revolution. 
you know, with the idea that healthcare is a social right, that employment is a social right, that those things should not be controlled and enlisted in a brigade of profit, but they should be conquered by working people for all humanity. That's, I mean, that's the program we offer. And anybody living through the crisis today or the crisis that has been going on in capitalism for the last 40 or 50 years, you know, know that that's a better system than what we have, you know, here in this country and in most places around the world. You know, I hear you talk a lot about this class oppression. How do you address the question of the race oppression? How would you address that phenomenon in the context of the history of America and capitalism? Well, I, you know, we think that we're never going to get rid of racism until we get rid of capitalism, that racism and the oppression of the black nationality is part and parcel of the capitalist class's ability to make profit and to rule in this country. And they they try to use this question especially to divide working people and pit us against each other. But we think that the struggle that happened in the 50s and 60s by that was led by black workers, the civil rights struggles and the whole black struggle during that time was a powerful, inspiring struggle. And it you know, it was primarily led by black workers who stood up for what they believed in, many times risked their lives, uh, and were killed for what they believed in. But it, this had an inspiring impact on, on all working people in this country. And we believe that out of that, you have a situation today where between workers, you have less racism. You have less prejudice against immigrant workers. I'm talking about between workers. Uh, There's less of this. And that's a good thing because it's going to help us unify together and fight our common enemy, which is the capitalist class. But And and we think that, um, you know, uh, it's it's a very important question. If you look at what's happening today, the deaths of, of people dying from coronavirus are higher among black workers and Latino workers. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. It's because they're super exploited by the system that we live in. One of the things that we think also is important that we're campaigning for is amnesty for undocumented workers. We think this is a very important question today. Many of these workers cannot even apply for unemployment, uh, you, could, you know, because they don't have papers. We, we think there's probably millions, you know, they're saying that there's 22 million people that have applied for unemployment right now, but there's millions that haven't because there's so many people applying they can't even get through the phone lines, and then you have a whole other layer of workers that don't have papers that can't can't apply. And um, But we think that amnesty is a crucial uh fight uh, that we need to wage to bring unity to working people so we don't have a layer of of our fellow brothers and sisters that are super exploited. Um. Okay, at at this point in time, you're listening to Africa on the Move. I'm Brother Africa. We're dealing with the theme tonight, is Sister Men Justice. We're talking to Brother Malcolm and Sister Elisa. And they are candidates for the Social Worker Party, talk about their platform, how they can make a change. And at this point in time, we will open up our program. 
If you have any views, comments, or questions you'd like to ask them or have or, or you want to make, feel free to call 323-679-0841 and hit one. Hit one, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. We are going to one of our political analysts or panelists at this point in time. Brother Haki, the mic is yours. Yes, let me just uh, say greetings uh, to your guest, Brother Africa. Um, my question is this. Um, one of the things historically, you know, third-party uh, candidacies have a very difficult time in terms of uh, finding a way onto the ballots, you know, according to states. Now, how are you guys doing in terms of um, state recognition of your candidacy? Brother Malcolm? Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to fight to get on as many ballots as in as many states as we possibly can. I mean, I mean, obviously, this current situation, you know, is has made it a little bit, in many ways, more difficult, obviously. The main bourgeois candidates have suspended their campaign. I mean, Biden is in, you know, I mean, the, our presidential candidate, Allison Kennedy, likes to say, you know, he's in his basement somewhere. You know, and Trump is basically, you know, he's getting his campaign on because he's just on the air every day. But the main bourgeois candidates have basically suspended their campaign. We we haven't suspended our campaign. We are, you know, talking to working people and we are, you know, going and visiting different states. But we'll fight. As, I mean, as you know, they try to keep working class people off the ballots in this country. But we have, on a number of occasions and a number of elections, you know, been on the ballots throughout the, you know, year. And so we'll continue to do that as an important, you know, step. But we'll be a part of mainly the fights that are going on in the working class today, today as well as on the day after the election, and in that way be a voice for working people. But, you know, but it, 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 it is under the current conditions, you know, harder to get on some of the ballots depending on what state. Okay, next we'll go to Brooke. Go ahead, Keith. No, I was asking the sister, what was her response? Yes. Um, well, you know, the election laws in the United States are um, written to allow the Democratic and Republican parties to dominate politics. It's very hard for small working-class parties like the Socialist Workers' Party to get on the ballot in many states. The signature requirements are just astronomical. But one thing that's in our favor right now is because of the um, – social crisis that we're seeing that's developed uh, because of the coronavirus, uh, a number of states have pushed their primary elections back. The Democratic Party convention has been changed until sometime in August. So what this is doing is the different states are changing the election laws, and they're going to make it easier for especially Democratic Party candidates to get on the ballot. And so they'll they'll – some of the Democratic Party candidates are saying that, well, how can we get signatures now? You know, we can't go around collecting signatures, so you've got to lower the requirements. So we're we're going to use this for us, and we're hoping that this will enable us to get on the ballot in, in more states in which we have been able to get on in the, in the past. Uh, we, we explained to workers, we want workers to vote for our party, the Socialist Workers Party, we believe it's better to vote for what you're for and not get it than vote for what you're against and get it. 
because that's what will happen if you vote for President Trump to be reelected or if you vote for uh, you know Joe Biden to be the president. You're going to get what opposes working people, and it's no answer for us. We also explain that the elections themselves, uh, the whole election system and, and the idea that uh, you can change things through electing politicians that sound good, that's not going to change things for working people. Uh, what's fundam- fundamentally going to change things for us is when we begin to fight and struggle in our own interests and build our movements that fight for our rights and to improve our conditions that are totally independent from the capitalist parties, the Democratic and Republican parties. Okay, let's go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your question or comment? Yes, yes. Um, you you all um, recognize the United Front Against Fascism, um, the the situation being uh, is Trump or is he or is he not part of the fascialization process in the United States and uh, and and then it, and then accordingly, what does that require of us as as uh, international communists or whatever? Uh, I I see the first four years of Trump has been devastating to the to the economy, the working class, and the, the environment. And uh, and the question becomes, you know, would, would we have been better off with Hillary Clinton than with, with, with Trump? And, and is there a material difference enough to, that, uh, you know, it, we, it would have been better with, with, with the Democrats? That's the real critical point in this moment in history uh because trump trump is a real 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 problem for me in my mind uh and uh i don't know i just wondering how you all see that thank you well you know i i think that's a that's a very good question because what the socialist workers party believes is that both parties the democrats and republicans no matter who is president whether it's Bush, Clinton, Obama, Trump, they represent a system, the capitalist system. And no matter what they say at election time, when they get elected to office, they represent the capitalists. That's who they represent. They, they represent the capitalist class. And um, I, I think that we're seeing a situation today which we're heading towards depression conditions. Uh, because of the shutdown of the economy, because of the coronavirus. And right now the government's been working overtime, the government of the United States and the governments in states all across the country have been working overtime to get working people to believe that what we face is caused by a virus. And that if we, and they, they, they constantly say we're all in this together, you know, we're everybody, uh, if we just work together, we can get through this. But I don't believe that. I think that it's working people that are being hit the hardest in this crisis. And it's not, the, it's not a virus that's our real problem. What's our, what our problem is the capitalist system that leads to these kinds of social crises when, when they have a system that puts profits ahead of everything and they don't meet human needs. 
they, you know, there's a reason why there was no uh, not enough ventilators and uh, not enough hospital beds and hospitals uh, because they don't they don't prioritize that. They don't make the, the way the capitalists look at it. They don't make money off of storing these kinds of things. To the to them, that's dead. That's dead capital. The only time they make money is if they can sell it and put it on the market as quick as possible. So they don't think about the things that are going to help the majority of people in the long run. They only think about what's going to help their class. And um, But one thing I just wanted to say, for anybody that's interested in, in more information, you can contact, you can go online and look up the Militant newspaper. The website is themilitant.com. You can subscribe to the Militant. It's only $5 to get an introductory subscription. You know, a lot of these alternative newspapers are closing down because there uh, there's so many restaurants and, and different stores that have been closing. They're not making money on advertising, so they're having to close down. But the Militant gets all of its contributions from, from the 5 and 10s and $20 from working people. So it's not going to close down, and I really encourage uh, – your listeners to um, take a look at the militant.com. Yeah, we okay, we agree with oh, yeah we agree with Malcolm X. Yeah, we agree with Malcolm X. What he historically said that they're, they're both one of them is the wolf and one of them is the fox. They neither neither one has our interests at heart. That it's not an ideological question. It's a class question. That's what's the most important things to understand. We've had every shade of Democrat and Republican from Carter to Bush, to Obama, to Trump, to the Clintons. And in every one of them, the conditions, particularly for African-Americans, have gotten worse. It's not a surprising that blacks and African-Americans died dis- disproportionately from heart disease, stroke, cancer, asthma, influenza, pneumonia, diabetes, as we're in prison more. That's, that's not a Democrat better, Republican worse, or Republican better or worse. It's a system of oppression. And it's ending that system of oppression that is the most important thing. That is why it's, it's, it's a class question of working class people beginning to fight together because working class people have been only people who have led the progress or foundation of all the progress we've seen in society, working together, fighting together, independent of those ruling class parties because they have the interest of working people. The ruling class has no interest of working people at all. And if this crisis hasn't shown you the the similarity between the Democrats and Republicans. I mean, I, not just the crisis of the virus, but the crisis that working people have been going through for the last 40 years. I, I, I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to understand what will convince you of that. Okay, Brother Afton, the back is yours. Certainly. Uh, revolutionary greetings uh, to both of you, both, I guess. Um, uh, thank you for your time. Uh, my thank question you. is, um, in this society, because it's been, unlike most other capitalist countries, it's been a uh, taboo to talk about socialism for uh, almost since then of World War II. Uh, how, uh, w- what changes would uh, SWP make if they were successful in getting into office to try to uh, do things differently from 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 what we've seen from the uh, uh, 
two-part duopoly that's in power right now. Uh, from the research I've done, the response of socialist countries, for example, to this coronavirus uh, uh, pandemic has been very different generally from the capitalist countries. But it's hard uh, because of the capitalist stronghold on the media, I think, for people to see that in this country. Well, um yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think I think the best example of a uh, well, really, the I, I believe the only socialist country in the world is Cuba, uh, and I think that's to me Cuba is just the way they've organized uh, to deal with coronavirus is so different than what's happened in countries like the United States, where in this in the United States, working people are on your own. You deal with it yourself. They have no regard for human life in in the United States, except if unless you're a rich capitalist or you're upper middle class. Uh, you know, upper middle class people, they can work from home. They're getting paychecks. Working people don't work for home from home. Working people right now are either laid off or they're barely making it. Um, but uh, but Cuba is completely different, and there are some articles that are coming out. In, in the regular newspapers right now that uh, are talking about what Cuba's been doing, especially in sending their doctors to some of the worst-hit areas for coronavirus. The, one of the first countries Cuba sent doctors to was Italy, and they went to Lombardy, one of the, had one of the highest death rates in the world for coronavirus. Um, but in Cuba, they, they actually organized medical students to go door-to-door checking up on Cuban workers to see how they were doing. And if they had any kind of symptoms, they immediately hospitalized them. And, and you know, in isolation, I mean, they checked on them and stuff. They weren't, you know, in total isolation. But And and until they got over these symptoms. It's completely, completely different, uh, completely different. You're, you're not seeing any kind of door-to-door visits of working people uh, in you know the the United States. They want people now to just hunker down, socially isolate, and that's a death trap, I I believe, for working people. Because we need, if you ever need working class solidarity, you need it today. And um, one additional thing is, you know, right now you've probably been noticing on the news there's a big discussion going on about reopening the economy which I believe is very important uh, for working people. Working people need jobs today, desperately. Why is the National Guard and the Army building field hospitals? There are laid-off construction workers today that could be doing that work. That's who needs to do that work. Our party is for fighting for a public works program to put millions of workers to work at union-scale wages. This is what we believe we need need to fight for. Okay, what we're going to do right now, we have a couple of callers who've been waiting for a while. We're going to see if they have any question comments. We'll call off that last one number. So we'll go to caller 7982. Caller 7982, do you have a question or comment, please? 7982, going once, going twice. Okay, let's move to caller 2714. 
question or comment? Carlos, yes, 27, yes, uh, 14. Yes, yes, go ahead, Carlos. Good evening, good evening, Brother Africa and, and our fellow panelists. This is Brother Maurice. Sorry for being uh, late uh, to the party. But I just want to um, want to ask a couple questions um, to Sister Allison and uh, Brother Malcolm about their support. Uh, do y'all have did y'all gain the support or endorsements of the Black Lives, uh, you know, any members of the uh, Black Lives Matter move, movement in Dallas or in, or in Pittsburgh or any of the uh, support from the labor unions? And my second question is, I wanted to know your position uh, on Venezuela or the work that you are, you both are currently doing in regards of Venezuela. Thank you. Well, um, I'll take the last question first. Those are very, you have very good questions on the show, by the way, and I wow. really thank you for for having us on. Um, but we support the sovereignty of Venezuela, and we oppose the ongoing attacks by U.S. imperialism against Venezuela. You know, Venezuela is doing a very important thing right now. They're having their airplanes fly the Cuban doctors to the Caribbean islands. Cuba is sending doctors to uh, 14 countries right now, many more internationally. Uh, traditionally, they've sent their doctors, but there's 14 countries right now that they're sending doctors to to help those countries fight coronavirus. And many of these are the Caribbean islands. And Venezuela is, is, is you know, helping Cuba get these doctors there by allowing them to use their planes. I think it's a real, real act of solidarity. And I believe that a lot of the attacks on Venezuela right now are also aimed at Cuba because Cuba, uh, over the years, has gotten a lot of oil from Venezuela, and it's helped Cuba survive this economic embargo that the United States has had on on Cuba since the beginning of the revolution. So we very much um, oppose any attempts by the U.S. government to go after the sovereignty of, of Venezuela and, and the government of Venezuela. Um, and, uh, and it's just on the, it's Brother Malcolm, just on the other campaigns, uh, you know, our campaign has been involved in many fights against police brutality. Especially, I mean, some led by Black Lives Matter, some led by other groups. But we've been involved in, I mean, one that, you know, rings with me mostly is a the last one that I, you know, sort of was involved in in Pittsburgh, where I'm from, you know, a 17-year-old boy, you know, teenager, was murdered, shot in the back by the cops, Antoine Rose II. And people in that community, black and white and whatever, you know, ethnic group, came out, you know, in support of arresting that cop, charging him with murder, and trying to get him convicted. And obviously because of the system we lived in, you know, live in that the cop was acquitted. But even after the cop was acquitted, Thousands, particularly young people, thousands of students in Pittsburgh walked out of their schools the day after the cop was acquitted and marched downtown. You know, our campaign was a part of that, and we've been a part of those fights because we think those fights are not only important, you know, in you know holding the system and that cop, you know, getting him convicted and put in jail is important, but it also is a seed for people beginning to understand what kind of society allows cops to be judge, jury, and executioners. And our campaign is in support of many labor struggles. You know, I've been involved in picket lines from nurses to web tech around Pittsburgh and around the country, web tech workers 
to the GM strike last fall, you know, going to picket lines and talking to workers there. And, you know, well, not even a really a picket, but a sort of sit-down strike by miners in Kentucky, the black jewel miners. This was a situation where the company came in and stole out of their own personal bank accounts the last check that they had paid to these miners. And these miners, instead of just taking it, you know, went and sit down on the train track, refusing to let the last coal train go and make its appointed, you know, destination to make profits for the mine owners. And sit on that train track for a number of days and weeks and months and won the support of working people around the country and eventually won that fight, that small fight. But it, it really resonated with working people. So we're, we're in support and accept support from any, you know, labor group that, you know, agrees with us. And we support any, many, many labor fights and have historically many labor fights and fights against police brutality. In particular, you know, the last, you know, the last one I was, at least in, for some measure, one day in Alston attended and more the trial of the, you know, young black black man who was murdered by the cop who in Dallas who, you know, um, she entered his apartment, Bolton Jane, uh, you know, you know, who she entered his apartment and, you know, murdered him, you know, and tried to get off. She was convicted because of the fight in the community there that, you know, forced, you know, the system to, you know, convict that cop. That's that's what our campaign does. And if anybody really wants to get in touch with the local campaign, it's seven six oh three Georgia Avenue of room 300, you know, Washington, D.C., 212. And that's the local campaign, you know, of the Socialist Workers' Party. Okay, Allison and Malcolm, give our listening audience your final pitch to why they should support your candidacy for the president of the United States government, and how can they do that? Side with you first, Malcolm. Yes, I mean, our part is about working-class people and their allies, the oppressed. We believe and have the confidence that we can run this thing better than they can. And if any time in history you can see that we can do that is now, I believe. And we believe we do that by working people fighting together, independent of the capitalist, capitalist parties, establishing our own party and fighting you know, the battles we need to fight to eventually take power and run society in the interest of humanity instead of in the interest of profit. Thank you. And Allison. Well, first, I just want to repeat, for anyone that's interested in more information, go to themilitant.com. You can read The Militant. You can subscribe to The Militant, donate to help fund The Militant, and to email the uh, Socialist Workers' Party campaign. It's socialistworkers2020 at gmail.com. And I, I just want to uh, thank you again for having us on your program and appeal to working people to support the Socialist Workers Party campaign. We think one of the most important things right now is when you look at uh, what's happened in the last several months and the millions and millions of workers that are out of work, you know, they're now to- talking about getting the economy reopened to get more working people back to work, which we think would be a very important thing. We think the worst possible thing that could happen to our class is if we have long-term depressive conditions, because when you have that kind of situation, it really brings workers down. They get very demoralized and fear standing up and fighting for their rights. 
and the bosses take advantage of that situation. But we have to look at they're going to what they're going to do when we go back begin to go back to work. These bosses are going to try to make us pay for their loss of profits by driving our wages down even further, by making our working conditions harder, making us work faster at higher paces of work. Think about what they did to us after the the collapse of the economy in 2008. That They're going to try to do that to us again. And we think that it's very important that working people begin to – that we stand up for our rights and on the job uh, and, you know, demand better conditions at work, demand control over the pace of production and working conditions, demand higher wages. Um, you know, Walmart, I mentioned I was a cashier at Walmart when I'm not campaigning. But, you know, Walmart is hiring all kinds of people right now. Uh, I was I was actually, uh, I was campaigning today at a, at a local Walmart, and they, they're handing out a piece of paper right now uh, to the customers saying that they're doing all kinds of hiring. They say if you apply today, you can get hired today, you can start today, you get hired as a temp. You get hired with, it's not 40 hours of work, it's low pay, and they're going to make the workers work harder and harder. And we believe that any fights that we wage today on the job to uh, stand up for our rights is very important uh, because it, it, it gives us confidence that we can change things, that we can work together with other workers to change things and fight together. And it's only through that that we're going to, gain the kind of confidence that will enable us to build a powerful working class movement in this country that can eventually take political power, make a revolution in this country and and fundamentally change, you know, what we're facing in the world today. Okay, we like to thank Brother Malcolm Jerry and Sister Allison Kennedy. They are candidates for the Socialist Worker Party. They ran this year for the presidency. So you have heard their pitch. You have heard their call. If you'd like to support them, please contact them. And we want you to remember that on this program, we believe in providing you information so you can think. And more importantly, we want to encourage you to join the organization so you can think more clearly. So right now, we're going to come back. Have everybody who's on this line there give their final thoughts for the night. And when we come back, we're going to close this program out. But right now, we're going to pause for this cause, and we're going to take you to Palestine. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word, Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries. Their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs, 
needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Program to, to today's program 
and we will keep that brother in mind, and we are here anytime you need to get information out. You stay strong and share that message with the people. We thank you. All right. Thank you. Next we go to our brother Malcolm. You'll find the thoughts for the night again, brother Malcolm. Me, brother? Yes, your final thoughts for the night. Uh, I just, just wanted to, just like the other brother before, just to make sure you, you know, got the website for the local social workers campaign office in D.C., which is, you know, the email is swp.washingtondc at verizon.net, you know, uh, for anybody who wants to contact the campaign, write us to an event to speak, and the address is 7603 Georgia Avenue, you know, um, room 300, Washington, D.C., 212. And just to, you know, from my heart to thank you for letting us be a part of this program. Okay, my brother, thank you for your contribution to today's program. And to Sister Allison, your final thoughts for the night. Well, well first I want to thank you, uh, just, you know, reinforce what Malcolm said, to thank you for letting us on your program tonight. I thought the questions were very good. We need more discussions like this. It's very important today. And encourage anyone that's interested in finding out more about the Socialist Workers Party 2020 campaign to email socialistworkers2020 at gmail.com or go access the militant newspaper at themilitant.com. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sister Allison. And then we go to Brother Maurice. Your final thoughts for tonight, Brother Maurice. Uh, I just want to thank thank uh, thank you for having me on the show. I'm I'm, ran, I'm running late. Uh, I want to thank all of the uh, the guest speakers who was on here tonight. Uh, thank you for all your hard work, and I and I wish, and I wish you and with all of my, my meditations and prayers that that you you all will fulfill your goals with your um, campaign. And uh, thank you for your work for the workers, for the for the for the proletariats. Thank you. Okay, next we go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your final thoughts for the night. Yes, I want to thank you. Thank you again for another great show. Um, I think you know my concern is that we distinguish between democracy and fascism. And uh, and understand the difference between democracy and fascism, and and how how that comes about, the difference how the one evolves into the other, etc. Uh, but like um, it's been very very good, and I thank you. Have a good night. Thank you, brother Moses, and we'll go to brother Haki. Brother Haki, you'll find it to us for the night. Yeah, real quickly, uh, I think it's important that people understand that capitalism is in decline. In fact, it's been in decline over the last 10 years. Uh, one of the things that we were clear on, we, when we talk about recession, America has been in recession for the last 10 years. So we're clear on the downfall of capitalism. But having said that, understanding that because it's in decline, that the, the elite is very much interested in restructuring the global economy. Part of this coronavirus uh, episode is all about restructuring the, of the economy. Uh, by transferring huge sums of capital to the very, very powerful at the expense of all else. And so what it seeks to do is consolidate its control and its power among the, among the elite. And so we've got to understand clearly that when, in terms of its designs, 
It has no interest in terms of needs or aspirations of working people or African community. So having said that, Brother Africa, I'm going to wish you a good night. And as usual, I always encourage people to unravel the matrix, and you can have a good night. Good night to you, Brother Haki. Next we have Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is um, is that we must continue to struggle and to intensify love of organization because we're not yet free, and we have a long uh, we have a long way to go to achieve that, and uh, we have to be get get better organized and join an organization such as the All African People's Revolutionary Party (GC) which you can find out more about by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org, or call us at 202-246-4896. And remember to uh, participate in African Liberation Day, Palestine Day, not by day, 2020, this year. Keep an eye on our website for the latest information on that. Thanks for having me. And, Brother Anthony, this year it will be podcast, so people all around the world can sit right where they are, call in or go on that computer and listen to the program. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, go ahead, Brother Anthony. Yeah, just to, uh, just to bear in mind that 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 it'll be a week of activities starting from May 18th through May 23rd. Uh, please uh, check out our website on a regular basis for the most current information in that regard, and please participate and 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 let your friends and family know as well. Thanks. And, Brother Anthony, we are honored to be the host of that program in this year, African Liberation Day. So, brothers and sisters, you know, you can dial in to this program, and um, we are happy you're part of it. In closing tonight, we'd like to thank everybody for their contribution to this program. We'd like to thank you, the listening audience, for allowing us the opportunity to come into your homes. But more importantly, we want to just remind you that, remember, Without information, you cannot think, and without organization, you cannot think clearly. We want you to join an organization that is fighting for the liberation of your people and humanity. If you are not in the organization, then you are unconsciously or consciously acting out in the interest of the liberation of your people and humanity. So please do that, and we must learn that lesson for history. History, and one of the best ways to do this, listen to one of our freedom fighters, and his experiences as he lived his life of trying to organize our people. Right now, we're going to send you to Brother Kwame Ture. He can talk about lessons learned from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. He is Brother Kwame Ture. We thank you for your welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour and... Uh, Within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and uh, its relationships of the 80s and relevance to the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I, I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look 
from the 60 and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s mid with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott, came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. That's if we are to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. 
the instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they, are served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time. But it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> and one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. 
in order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. That was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in a society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students is clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. 
The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. <clears throat> Thus, thus, students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood, and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and as a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the basis of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the power of the, the ability to organize our people. 
Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country, immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know, as Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populists. We did work for the populists. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples that will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interests. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interests of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. 
I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which SNCC gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the Oh, 